it took me years to forgive myself for making the worst decision I ever made in my life, which was allowing these doctors to tell me whether my son would live or die. And I believed them and I said my goodbyes and I never should have done that. I never should have done it. I should have taken the time to define those things that matter most to me because when these storms that roll into our lives hit you hard, if you don't have those things defined and you're gonna wing it, the, the, the chance for you to make a devastatingly wrong decision is astronomical. And, and it happened to me and, and I fucked it up. And I was like, I can't, I, I can't ever do that again because for the last seven years, the last thought I have every night before I fall asleep is I wonder if Theo thinks I gave up on him. We are back here at the Mic Drop Moment with another great guest and another great episode. When I first met today's guest, I didn't know him very well. I guess that's how it goes when you first meet someone, right? But I knew of him. I knew about the energy he brought to stage. I knew he was a musician. And I knew that when he was at events, he was the person I heard everyone talking about. There's been several times where we've both been speakers at events, and I heard his name mentioned in hallways, at the happy hours, and all around the events for moving people, for connecting with people, for being a great storyteller. So I knew I had to have him on the mic drop moment. I got to meet him at an event last summer as well. We hung out for a little bit and, and spent some time together. And I realized just like what a great gift he is to have as a friend. So it's uh, it's a real treat for me to bring this one to you. In today's episode, Brant Mensoir and I talk about family, about art, about creativity, about the links between music and public speaking. And we also talk about his brand new book. It comes out September 29th, 2020. It's called Black Sheep, Unleash the Extraordinary, Awe-Inspiring, Undiscovered You. And he actually takes us down that journey a little bit in this episode, so we can get a, a jump on on figuring out our own black sheep. It's a really cool concept, and when I first heard it, I knew, okay, I'm into this. I need some of this. Brett Mensoir is one of the country's top 10 motivational speakers. He is a author, an award-winning musician, a podcast host of a podcast called Thoughts That Rock, which you should also check out, and he's the CEO and founder of Rockstar Impact, a boutique agency that teaches people and organizations how to cultivate values-based leadership. And on this episode, he teaches all of us how to do exactly that. So here's my conversation with Brant Mensoir. So you have a story to tell, and you wonder how to own the stage and give that killer speech that will captivate the masses. You don't just want to speak to them. You want to transform your audience. Welcome to the Mic Drop Moment. Bold conversations about public speaking, storytelling, and business that give you real-world valuable takeaways so you can craft a speech, a story, a business, and a life that the world can't stop talking about. It's time to find your mic drop moment. Here is your host, Mike Ganino. I was really interested in understanding how you got to this place where when I think about actual human rock stars that I know, yes. you're, you, you're the top of my list for that. <laughs> and we met because we're both public speakers. We were at an event together. So how did, how did you go from rock star to public speaker? Yeah, it, uh, it wasn't planned uh, the way of which it, it actually happened, but I've been 
uh, gosh, a recording artist for almost 20 years, uh, started in uh, the year 2000, actually, and two different bands, two different record deals, um, same same sort of main bandmate for each. Uh, JT Keel uh, has been with me for, for the better part of those 20 years. And in 2012, we had just signed another record deal uh, with a, with a label out of New York, uh, with big kettle drum. And we were touring, you know, doing 80 to hundred and plus dates a year. And my son got, my oldest son got sick. Uh, he ended up, uh, being diagnosed with a rare blood cancer. And so that put us, uh, put him into the hospital and me with him, with my wife. And we spent, uh, 263 straight days living in the hospital with him. And so, when that all happened, uh, you know, he survived, but it's, it's been, you know, the last seven years have been still sort of a struggle back and forth with what that looks like. And so I needed to find a way to transition off the road, be home a little bit more, um, and have better control over my schedule. And so, you know, at that time I had another good friend who was the lead singer of a band called five star Iris. His name was Alan Schaefer. And Alan was starting an organization called Banding People Together. And it started off as a team building endeavor where we would write original songs with companies. We'd come in, break the company into, into bands, into teams, if you will. And we'd sit and we'd write original songs with them. And uh, that's sort of how I got my start. Uh, each one of these sessions had sort of a general session keynote up front to start the day. And I started to do those and just sort of it, it rolled into me branching out um, to do some stuff on my own as well. I still do a lot of work with banding, but for the last year or so, um, my own uh, with the, my first book coming out and then sort of just the overall interest in what I talk about um, really led to a, a super busy schedule with just me talking about those things. And so that's how I sort of transitioned out of the music world. I still use music in, in a lot of my talks to help uh, make points and teach and connect the head and the heart and engage that limbic brain. And all those reasons why we remember song lyrics, I try to hack that part of the brain to get them to remember some behavioral science. And so when you were thinking of, when you were thinking of, wait a second, this, this work with organizations going in is working. Did you immediately know what you wanted to say? Was there a period of time where you thought, uh, what do I want to go say to these people? Or did you have that, did something just pop up and you say, I've got to get this message into more people's hands on the speaking side of things? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, it started off with some sort of content generated around collaboration and what is collaboration and how do we become rock star collaborators? And so a lot of that, uh, Alan and I sort of curated together, but as I was dealing with, with the repercussions of, of Theo's uh, recovery and all those sorts of things, I started to have these personal revelations of, I realized I was winging it in my life and I, and I had to stop um, if I was going to get to where I wanted to both to be able to take care of the family financially and to just make better decisions. And um, it, it was something that I became obsessed with what that looked like. How do we stop winging it? How do we make good decisions? And, um, you know, seven years worth of study has led to uh, what the new book will, will be uh, next uh, September when it comes out. 
And so what is, tell us about the new book. Yeah, so I'm super excited, Mike. Um, the book is called Black Sheep, Unleash the Extraordinary, Awe-Inspiring, Undiscovered You. And, you know, while I was, while I was sort of doing my research, I came across a very interesting fact. And, um, and I ask everybody this question when I meet them and talk about the book. Do you know why we don't actually value black sheep in real life? No. And, and that's the, that is literally the answer I get all the time. But the truth is a black sheep's wool cannot be dyed. <laughs> and that's why we don't value them. And so talking about purpose and core values and and that's sort of the world that i live in our core values are our black sheep those are the things that cannot be dyed they cannot be twisted into something else and i found so many people that were were living um feeling like a black sheep and thinking like it was a bad thing and in reality it's those black sheep values that authentic fabric of what makes you you that is what you should be running to. And so there's such a message of acceptance when you understand that you should be longing to find those black sheep values within you and honor them with everything you do, um, that, that that's really what the premise of the book was about. The interesting thing that I found was that farmers, sheep farmers, um, even though they don't value black sheep in the traditional way like they would the rest of the flock, they actually keep one black sheep for every hundred white sheep in the flock as a marker to help keep track of them. So every morning the sheep marker gets uh, the sheep farmer gets up and the first thing they do is they look out over their flock. So if they've got 500 sheep in their care, they should see five black sheep. And if they don't see five black sheep, then they know that something is wrong. And so with that revelation, I realized that we have to discover our black sheep values and we have to make sure that people see them first so they know who we are, what makes us us, and can actually appreciate us for the unique people that we are. I love this idea that this thing that that probably in so many places is not is not valued or not seen it. And with each of us, you know, you said our black sheep values, which I also love. What a, what a great brand brand on that. <laughs> Why do you think that it's so interesting? I was watching this the other day because I thought we love people who don't fit in. We love celebrities who don't fit in. Yeah. We love people who are, who are strange and unique and quirky. And yet we feel the, and, and we celebrate people. We see someone get on stage. You know, I look at you and I think, Oh my God, this guy has so much swagger. Uh, I, you know, we could start a boy band with our hair, you yeah. and I, and, and yeah. uh, your podcast partner, Jim Knight, we can yeah. go on tour, but we look at people and we want them. We want the people we look up to, to be different and strange and stand out. And yet we feel this pressure that we have to fit in so much while we honor the fact that other people are really cool when they don't. What do you think that comes from? Well, I think it's a couple of things. You know, what I realized over the last couple of years of really digging into the research is that there's an epidemic in this country of people winging it. And when I say they're winging it, if you don't know, I believe we all have what I call a flock of five. We all have five black sheep values that are sort of the the deepest innermost fabric of who we are. It's, it's, it's what matters most to us. 
And 99% of the people that I meet, and that's really not an exaggeration, 99% of the people that I meet have no idea what those five things are. They know the 30 things that they think are really important, but they don't know their five non-negotiables. Those things that they, no matter the argument, no matter how influenced or someone tries to persuade them, they can't be moved from those things. They've never really done the work to figure out what those are. And because of that, they can't actually use those things to live their life and make good decisions. And what I ended up finding out the reason that we don't like it is we don't want to hold ourselves accountable to anything. And when you define these things in your life and say, these are the non-negotiables, these are the things that matter most to me, then you have now five things to hold yourself accountable. So if you say, look, health is one of my black sheep values um, and it's 530 and the alarm goes off and you go, not today, Satan, you know, you're not going to get out of bed. You're going to sit there and, and sleep in. Then one or two things is happening. One Health is actually not one of your black sheep values or two, you're lazy. Hmm. And so nobody wants to feel like that about themselves. And so we don't do the work. And so it's much easier to not break the rules when we don't know what the rules are. Yeah. If we don't, if we don't give ourselves the rule, then it's easy to say, well, I don't believe, you know, I never said I would do that. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and that's the, the example that I that I use is so two years ago, um, Big Kettle Drum was recording our last record and we, we decided to record in uh, in Los Angeles. And we had this opportunity to be produced by a woman named Carla Olson, who was in a band in the 80s called the Text Tones and um, was really successful and went on to, to be a producer and produce some incredible acts. And we, you know, she offered to produce this, this record for us. And she said, I would love to, to bring in Bob Dylan's band to back you guys. And so, you know, we couldn't say no to that opportunity. And so we drove out from Florida, uh, central Florida to Hollywood and recorded there and had a, an amazing experience. But on our drive back, we, we were six o'clock in the morning, uh, had been driving all night we just crossed into New Mexico and uh, you know, the sun's coming up. There's, there's like no cars on the road at all. Uh, and all of a sudden there's a cop behind me. And so he pulls me over and I'm, I'm looking at JT, my bandmate going, what, what? I'm, I wasn't speeding. I'm not, there's nothing going on. Do I have a brake light out? Like, I, I don't know what's happening right now. So I'm all nervous and the cop comes to the window and he says, sir, do you know that you were traveling in the left-hand lane? And, and I'm thinking to myself, so? <laughs> yeah, yes. And he said, well, it's illegal in this state to drive in the left-hand lane unless you're passing. And I, I professed my ignorance and said, I'm sorry. I, I'm from Florida. That's not, that's not a rule. That's not a law where I'm from. Um, and so he let me off with a warning and I got in that right hand lane and I drove back to Florida. And, and, and the example of that for me is this. I, I think it sums up exactly where most of us are. We know our destination. We know that we are the, the intention at hand for us. We're trying to get back to Florida. We're trying to get home. We're headed in the right direction, but we're in the wrong lane. 
And, and that's where I find most of us live our lives is that we know where we want to go, but we're just traveling in the wrong lane. And we need to be deliberate with our intention if we want to see the results that we need to feel like we are living a life of fulfillment. Yeah, it's and it's interesting to think of how that every single day people are living in that way without this clear idea of where they're headed. And so it makes sense that I don't want to define my flock of five because then I'm scared to I'm scared to not live into that, at, at least if I don't say that I'm not letting myself down. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's and it's much easier to just be oblivious to all of those things so that you can continue to wing it. Because even though people will, there's some people who will tell you I'm awful at winging it. I, I'm not really good at it. That's just bullshit. Most people are actually phenomenal at winging it. If you're alive, you're pretty good at winging it. And so the idea becomes, are you willing to do that work to sort of draw the line in the sand around you to say, here's the box of which I'm going to play and abide by those rules of the things that you say matter most to you. And in that way for you, you, you were talking earlier about, there was a, a point where you said with your son, yeah, you had to stop winging it. Yeah. What, in what ways were you winging it before? Yeah. So this is, this is, um, sort of the impetus of the of the whole reason why I'm, I'm writing this book. And so what happened with Theo, uh, who, who's our, our oldest son, um, he had a, a rare blood cancer called myelodysplastic syndrome and he needed a bone marrow transplant to survive. And so they told us, look, here's, here's what's going to happen. Uh, we'll find a, a, a match. You'll spend about 30 days in the hospital getting the transplant. You'll spend about another 60 days in and out of the hospital, um, checking sort of every day with his numbers and seeing what's going to happen. And at the end of 100 days, he'll be back to playing soccer and doing all those things. And, you know, he was 14 years old at the time. And um, that, that just wasn't our experience. And so what ended up happening was he got the transplant. We found a, an, an unrelated donor match and you know, as he is sort of, we're waiting for the, the transplant to take, there's something called an engraftment period uh, when you get a transplant and that's sort of waiting for the body to start to repopulate the red cells and white cells and platelets and all those things. And so we're in that moment and, and anybody that gets a bone marrow transplant gets something called graft versus host disease. And this is where sort of, um, the body doesn't recognize the marrow that's been put into it. And so the marrow um, actually begins to attack the body because it's a foreign substance. And so everybody gets it. There's four levels. You hope you get level one or two, um, but level three is really dangerous and level four will kill you. And, and Theo had level four plus, right? I mean, it was in places that they didn't even know you could get graft versus host disease. Wow. And so the way that you treat it is you super suppress the immune system so that the body won't fight back. And so that's what they did. And um, unfortunately, when you do that, you leave the body very susceptible to whatever infection is rolling around the hospital. Um, and in that case with Theo, he ended up contracting a deadly fungus um, that had the exact opposite treatment. You needed to super boost the immune system to kill this fungus. And so we ended up at a zero sum game. And so, you know, one afternoon we get called into the parents lounge uh, in the on the pediatric oncology ward at Florida Hospital and my wife and I walk in and there's a there's a line of doctors sitting in front of us and they said listen um, we are 
incredibly sorry, but there's nothing else we can do. These, no matter what we treat, the other's going to kill him, and we don't think he's going to make it through the night. So you should probably go back in and say your goodbyes. And so, you know, we were obviously devastated and didn't quite know what was happening in that moment. And so, what do you do? You, you know, I grab my wife's hand. We walk back to his room. We get his younger brother, who's uh, you know three years younger than him. And um, you know, we sat on the edge of his bed and we tried to find the words to say goodbye. And and you know, sitting there and hearing your child very meekly whisper, "I'm going to miss you, Daddy," is like you know, it, it's it's just life altering. And so we sat there all night long. I called my brother who lived in New Hampshire, 1500 miles away. And I'm like, listen, man, you're not going to have time to make it down here. So if you want to say your goodbyes, you have to do it now. And so he did as well. And, um, obviously was distraught. And what happened next is really what changed the course of our lives forever. And, and that was that my brother, when he hung up the phone was so upset that he decided he was going to sit on his couch and film himself holding up these poster boards in a Hail Mary attempt to find an answer. Um, so the poster board said, my nephew's dying. He's got mucor mycosis fungus. He's got graft versus host disease. If you know anyone, if you have any ideas, if you have any connections, we're desperate. He's got 24 hours and he uploaded it to YouTube. So, you know, I stayed all night on the edge of the bed, sort of waiting for Theo to pass. And um, he made it through the night. My phone is ringing off the hook. I'm trying to be present in the moment and, and spend every last second that I can with him. And, um, you know, my, my phone is hot from vibrating because I've just, I've put it on, on silent and I'm trying to ignore it. And, and after three or four hours, I pick it up and I look at it. And I have all these messages and these these voicemails from people that I don't know. And what had happened was that the, the video my brother uploaded uh, had been seen over 500,000 times by the time I picked up my phone. And I was getting calls from doctors from all over the world who said, hey, I saw this video and I think I might can help. And so we got a call from a guy at MD Anderson in Houston, a doctor there who happens to be... Um, an expert in this fungus that was killing him. And he said, I, there's this new sort of experimental treatment that I think might actually help your son. Would you mind if I speak to your doctor? And so we put them together. And then I got a call from Dr. Tim Johnson from Good Morning America. And he said, listen, anybody that your doctor wants to talk to, you just make a list and I'll make it happen in 24 hours. And so we did, we made a list of a guy in, at Dana-Farber in Boston and a research scientist at Cornell University and all these doctors, the four of them put their heads together and they came up with this insane plan to try to uh, uh, save Theo's life. And it worked. And, and you know, it, it was such, I, I don't know another word to tell you then other than it was a miracle. And so, um, sorry. Um, it was such a powerful, powerful moment for, for our family that, um, you know, I, I, it took me years to forgive myself for making the worst decision I ever made in my life, which was allowing these doctors to tell me whether my son would live or die. And I believed them and I said my goodbyes and I never should have done that.
I never should have done it. I should have taken the time to define those things that matter most to me because when these storms that roll into our lives hit you hard, if you don't have those things defined and you're going to wing it, the, the, the chance for you to make a devastatingly wrong decision is astronomical. And, and it happened to me and, and I fucked it up and I was like, I I, I can't ever do that again because for the last seven years the last thought i have every night before i fall asleep is i wonder if theo thinks i gave up on him and, and that's a, that is a horrible horrible feeling of guilt and shame to try to get over um when it, if i just would have done the work the conversation i would have had with him would have been incredibly different because it wasn't until a couple of years later that I got serious and said, I have to define what my black sheep values are. And so when I sat down and did the work, I found that creativity and hope and impact and empathy, family and authenticity. Those are my, I have six, those are my six black sheep values that I now make every decision in my life through. And if I go back to that conversation, sitting on the edge of the bed, none of them are present in that conversation. And, and that was the problem. And so I've, I've made it my life's work since then to make sure that people take a minute to define these things in their lives so that when they are faced with, uh, with a, a life and death situation, they've got something to, to actually help them make a good decision. And that's the real impetus for writing the book. And in that, in that moment where you, where you realize that, where, where were you? What happened the time that you said, these are the six things that I've got to, this is my new mission in life. What was, what was that moment? You know, interesting enough, it was, um, I was, I was reading an article that talked about uh, something called Kintsune, um, which is a, a Japanese philosophy and um, also a way to repair pottery. And uh, the, the legend has it that there was an ancient Japanese shogun in the you know 1500s or so that had his favorite tea bowl uh, got broken, and so he sent it to China to be repaired. And uh, it came back, and it had metal staples in it, and sort of glue everywhere, and it was just it was ugly. Um, and, and he wasn't satisfied with it. So he, he took it and he gave it to some local artisans and he said, listen, I, I want you to repair this, but it's got to look better than this. So I don't care what you have to do, but, but just do what you can. And so rather than try to make it look like it never got broken, they went out and found the most valuable resource that they could get their hands on at the time, which was gold. They melted the gold down and they used the gold to fill in the cracks of the brokenness of the pottery. And in doing so, they, they actually did two things. One, they, they made the T-Bowl more valuable because now it's, it's lined with, uh, with gold. Uh, but secondly, they honored sort of the history of, of what the bowl had been through. And, and they've done so in such a beautiful and incredible way of showing the broken pattern of, of what had happened and illuminating it. It's actually, um, that's, that's what Kinsuni means. Uh, and so they illuminated it uh, to, to show sort of those patterns within. And what I realized is that it's those core values that, that hold our brokenness together. And so I had to define those things because if it wasn't 
those core values that were holding my brokenness together, then what is holding my brokenness together? And, and um, I, I didn't have an answer. And so that's what led me on the journey to really sit down and figure these things out and dig into my past and figure out what I, what I truly had as my non-negotiables, my undiable black sheep values. And, um, it took, it took me a while to, to, to make sure and prove that they were real. But when I did, I started to use them for every decision that I was faced with. And, and as long as I honored those things, um, I could say yes to the things that I needed to. I could say no to the things that I didn't and not feel any sense of guilt or shame. And, and really for me, that was the start of, of transforming my life into what it looks like today. You have this, you have this great ability both on stage and, and here on this episode and, and in life, just talking to you to, to take things that have happened and make them make sense. Because a lot of times what happens when someone is speaking or sharing or they tend to go into the the history, the details of what happened. And one of the things I, I find really remarkable about you is your ability to take what happened to you or, or what even happened to someone else in their broken conditions yeah. and turn it into meaning, turn it into something we can learn from. Because again, a lot of things have happened to a lot of people, but it's what we make it mean that is interesting. Do you think that that came from being a musician and having to tell these micro stories on stage or were, were you always interested in kind of looking around you and saying, what, what's here? What's underneath of this? How can, how can I share this? Yeah. So I think that being a songwriter uh, definitely helped me um, with that because listen, you can't, it, it, if you're going to have any sort of longevity in the music business, um, uh, unless you're going to subject yourself to just harrowing experiences over and over and over again, you better learn to write about other people and what they've been through and, and try to, you know, walk a mile in their shoes so that you can tell that story as if you experienced it. And so I think that that has been an incredible help for me sort of transitioning uh, into the speaking world and being able to, to tell stories um, that might not have happened to me, but because of that ability as a songwriter to sort of place yourself in the situation, I feel all of the emotions um, that happen when you put yourself in that situation. And it just allows me to connect in a way that, um, you know, everybody learns differently and everybody sort of, um, when they come to the table, they have a preferred way that they communicate. And so for me, uh, being able to do that just expands my ability to connect dots when I'm on stage so that nobody gets left out. And do you think that what was that easy when you went from, from doing that as a musician to doing that as a speaker? Was it, was it, did it feel like, Oh, I'm, I'm doing this just without, without an instrument or what was the change there for you? Or was there one? Yeah. You know, it's, um, so being on stage, you know, starting off in the music business, I started as a solo act. And so, you know, I toured for a couple of years as a singer songwriter and, you know, it's a lonely, it's a lonely business when that's the case, when it's just you on the road and you you're away from home for weeks or even months at a time. Um, you know, you sort of start to, to find ways that, that the, the only moment you look forward to is that moment on stage because it's, it's your only sense of community, um, that you have. 
And so uh, for me, uh, it's, it's such an honor and a blessing to be able to be in, in a position on a platform somewhere speaking to an audience. Um, I relish every second I have with them. I want them in the palm of my hand. Uh, I, I tell every client that hires me, there's only two words that I care about um, that I want as feedback from any, any organization that hires me, and that's life-changing. And if it's not life-changing, then, then I didn't do my job. And so that is uh, uh, a rather high expectation in bar to set, but I, I believe that with everything in me. And, um, and, and I, I rarely, rarely fail because I give it everything I have. I leave everything on the stage every time. And um, that leaves me an emotional basket case a lot of times, <laughs> but at the- but at the same time, um, I know that that there was nothing left for me to give, and so I can walk away feeling really good about it. Yeah, well, and that's part of that's part of being a performer in a way. Whether you know, I know that from 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 acting and and doing theater that the shows where you don't feel that way, you know that you didn't do what you're supposed to. And the shows where you feel that way, the the emotional basket case, that's where you're like, I did my I did my job today. What is your, how, how do you deal with that? Because I mean, you're busy, you are booked solid. Yeah. And so how do you deal with that every day of, oh my gosh, I gave it my all. And now I'm back in my room. I'm back in the car. What's your, what's your style of kind of handling that? Yeah. So, you know, one, one of the things that, um, that, that I talk about in, in the book is, uh, developing your inner circle. And, um, this came from an interview actually we did on, on our podcast, uh, thoughts that rock with, with Jim Knight and myself, we interviewed Don Yeager. Uh, Don is, a oh gosh, 11 time New York times, bestselling author, uh, an editor at, at sports illustrated. He has, uh, had an amazing life. He's, he was personally mentored for a decade by John Wooden, um, the legendary leadership guru and, and UCLA basketball coach. And, you know, one of the things he said as the best piece of advice he'd ever been given came from coach Wooden. And he said um, that if you want to know the capacity for your success, look at your inner circle. And, um, and, and one of the hardest lessons to learn is sometimes the people who get you where you are, aren't the people to take you where you want to go. And when you're on the road and you are constantly giving it all you have and you come off the stage, you know, you go from a room of potentially thousands of people that are hopefully adoring fans at that point. And you spend an extra hour or two when you're done talking, signing books or giving hugs or shaking hands or whatever that looks like. Um, And then all of a sudden, within a matter of minutes, you're completely alone in your hotel room. And you're, it's the weirdest feeling to yeah. go from such a euphoric high to this, just who are you going to share it with? And so I have been very fortunate and very deliberate in building an, uh, an inner circle of people that they sort of serve as my church on the road, if you will. And, and they keep me centered. They keep me focused, moving forward to my goals. Um, I, they're, they're make themselves available uh, when I when I come off the stage to help me just decompress and sort of process what just happened, um, and that's been a huge huge help. Without that, um, I don't know that that it's a sustainable lifestyle. Yeah, and I think that's. I mean, even going back to to musicians, I think that's part of what's like very unique about musicians that's different than actors in a way 
is that a lot of times musicians are are alone and a lot of times they're touring because that's how they make money. Yeah. And so that whole that whole thing that you were just describing, I see that with so many of my musician friends, even even people who are not, you know, you think about it, you think of like, oh, that's happening to Taylor Swift or that's happening to, you know, really big stars. But it happens to people who are just touring a hundred cities a year, going place to place in a van as well. Yeah. And not having that circle. And so for that inner circle, when someone, if someone's listening and they think, oh, wait a second, I'm starting to get busy. I'm starting to do this more. Even I'm just an entrepreneur and I'm doing this thing that's really hard and I don't have this inner circle. What's your, what's your rule? What's your, uh, who, who gets into the inner circle with Brandt? So there's, there's a process, right? And so the process that Coach Wooden um, uh, gave to Don Yeager was to sort of separate your life into three distinct areas, right? You have your, your make a list of the five people you spend the most amount of time with in your personal life, the five people you spend the most amount of time with in your professional life, and then the five people you spend the most amount of time with in, in what he would call other, which would be groups you might belong to, something like Rotary Club, maybe it's church, maybe it's a nonprofit organization you support, um, but it sort of fits in that other category. So you've got 15 people that are now sort of on this list that you're looking at that you devote the most amount of time to. And the one question you have to ask yourself is, are they going where you're going? And if the answer is yes, then they, they make that next round. If the answer is no, then it doesn't mean you, you excommunicate them or cut them out of your life, but you start to shift the time that you have available uh, to the people that are headed in the direction that you're going. So the idea is to dwindle down that 15 to five. And, and that's how you sort of come up with your, your inner circle of those people that are headed in the same direction that you are headed. And in the book, that's sort of the external part of your life. And on the internal part of your life, it's those five black sheep values that sort of serve as your inner circle of what matters most to you uh, internally. Right. And, it, you know, it actually makes sense to me that I would be thinking about this. I'm kind of learning here. This is a masterclass. This is one of the joys of, of having a podcast, by the way, is you get to interview really cool people and then you get to learn things as you go. It's it's like a, a form of interesting therapy lived out loud in a way. <laughs> but I'm thinking about you saying this and I'm thinking, OK, my inner circle, my three groups. And and I'm thinking, OK, who's going where I'm going? And what I what I hear you saying is it may be actually where you want to go, but it may also just be people who are living in those same kind of flock of five values as you as well. People that are headed in the same direction in a values way, not just necessarily career-wise. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, for sure. You know, now the the idea is we all have have more in common than I think we like to look at. And we we have a tendency <laughs> to focus on on all those things that separate us. But you know, more than likely, uh, you share at least one or two of those black sheep values with the people that are closest to you. And it's part of that reason. Um, you don't want to share all your values with them because you want some diversity of thought and, and some diversity in your life, just period of, of having people that think differently, that act differently. Um, but they're driven like you're driven. Um, they hold you accountable. They are the people that aren't afraid to sort of say what needs to be said uh, in a way that's going to hit and land with you um, and not one that is going to dance around uh, the truth at all. And so for me, it's really, 
defining those those five once you have them and once you realize that you do share some very strong values in common with them at the same time um, you're really leaning on them for their uniqueness what are those other things that they bring to the table that you don't um, because it helps with perspective and and gives you uh, opportunities to grow in areas that that wouldn't come naturally to you and so when you're when you're thinking of that, I'm assuming one of these people in your circle is is your co-host of the show, yeah. uh, Thoughts That Rock, Jim Knight. Yes. How did you how did that relationship happen? Because one of the other things that I've seen is that it feels like there's some great synergy between you, not only there, but in some of the the workshops and things I've seen you done. Tell yeah. me about your tell me about that friendship. So, you know, I met Jim through the work I was doing with banding people together um, years ago. It's probably six or seven years ago now. Uh, at the time, Jim was still working at Hard Rock as their director of learning and development. And um, we, we became friends. Uh, we live about an hour apart from each other. And over the years, we sort of just got a little bit closer. Jim started to just kill it on the speaking tour. I mean, he was doing 90, 100 dates a year and just absolutely crushing it. So, you know, part of part of uh, developing your inner circle is looking for people that are willing to be mentors, right? And and approaching them and seeing if they're willing to to sort of help in that way. And and that's what Jim was for me. So I was able to sort of go to him and say, "Hey, I feel like this is what I'm meant to do. Um, you're doing it, and and I'm not quite sure of all the pieces to the puzzle that are needed for me to to take a shot at this." And so over the last few years. You know, Jim's helped me develop sort of what being a full-time keynote speaker looks like. What assets do you need um, from from the video stuff to the session synopsises to the how do you present yourself to a client to what do you say yes to and what do you say no to? And, you know, as uh, as we started to do that, you know, we've just, we, we became best friends and, and um you know, he literally two years ago walked me into Kepler Speakers, which is his, he's a, exclusively with Kepler, one of the largest speaking bureaus in the country. Um, he he said, "Come on, we're going to D.C." And he walked me in their offices, and he said, "Hey, this is Brant. We we um, do a lot of work together, and I think you guys should represent him." And you know that, that it doesn't hurt when you have an exclusive that that does ninety gigs a year for you to have him ask <laughs> for you. So you know, I think they acquiesced. Uh, at first based solely upon the fact that Jim was asking and he was um, one of their golden children. And so um, over the last two years, I've been able to develop an, uh, a relationship with Kepler and, and this last year within the last six months went exclusive with them myself and now um, sort of join their stable of exclusive speakers that um, you know they can rely on to, to constantly sort of uh, over deliver uh, to their clients and just knock, knock the ball out of the park every time. And Jim's been a, just a massive influence in my life. Um, he is somebody that doesn't get riled easily. Uh, I am much more emotional than he is. He is Mr. Practical Tactical. And I, uh, and we laugh all the time that, that um, when Jim gets done with a talk, people go, wow, you gave us so many practical and tactical things to do. And and, I'm, and, and when I leave my talks, people are like, you changed my life. And so it's, it's a very different um, uh, end game for us, but it works so well together because without the practical tactical, people don't know how to get where they need to go. And so we started a podcast uh, about four months ago now, and um, 
uh, are just loving it. And, and our podcast simply asks one question, which is what's the best advice you've ever been given. And, and we have these conversations with amazing people and CEOs and rock stars and movie stars and uh, just uh, incredible uh, people who are willing to give a little bit of time to help others say, this is the piece of advice that changed my life. It's such a great podcast. I've, I've listened to several episodes and, and wrote a review. And one of the things I love about it is that there are so many in, in that whole idea you were speaking earlier of in your in your circle that you're creating and you want to find people who have different, you know, maybe they have some of the same flock of five, but maybe some different ones to provide perspective. I love the show because I feel like you do that really well on the show. There are people that there's a common you're going in the same direction with so many people that are on the show, but also they're bringing this new freshness to it. What's been in that? What's been one of the most surprising things you've learned through hosting the show from one of the guests? Oh, well, I got to tell you. So uh, even yesterday, we um, so we batch record, so we do everything. You know, we'll record three to five um, episodes in a day, and, and we do that usually once a week. So we are probably three months out from um, having things in the can and, and ready to ready to be launched. And yesterday. Um, we interviewed a guy named Philip Stutz and uh, he came to us through Kepler. Kepler's a partner on the podcast. So they, they, uh, when they have somebody they feel will be a really good guest, they, they filter them our way. And so Philip is a former um, political ad expert who has had over 1200 successful political campaigns that he's run Um over a hundred U.S. Uh, House representatives, um, twenty plus senators, uh, three presidents, um, and what was incredible to me is there are people who who think so differently than 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 you might think on a regular basis that that it provides a level of depth to your thought process that, that just didn't exist before. So the example that he gave yesterday was just incredible. So he talked about autonomous cars and he said, everybody's focused on the fact that autonomous cars exist. They're going to exist. He says, my seven-year-old daughter will probably never drive a car because by the mm. time she gets there, autonomous cars are going to be driving us everywhere. And people are so focused on only that, that they don't think about all the other things that this is going to affect. And he went on to list all of these things that I would have never thought in a million years. So he's like, well, what happens to the auto insurance company that no longer gets your money? So that's an industry that gets disrupted. So what happens to the fact that autonomous cars don't break the law? So they're not speeding. They don't park wrong. So where are cities now going to get all their revenue from people who are getting parking tickets or getting speeding tickets. So what happens that they don't break the law that there's going to be 35% less accidents on the road. So what happens to all those emergency room nurses who are no longer needed? And so I, you know, that to me blows my mind that there are people who think so far past the surface um, that that's, that's sort of the thing that blows me away with some guests. They just come on and they're, they're, the way their thought process works is so drastically different and it's so deep that um, it gives me new perspective and, and, and makes me really start to question some things beyond maybe the surface look that I would normally give them. 
Yeah, it, it definitely makes sense that in in your quest to uh, to stop winging it in life, finding people who say, hey, I'm thinking like 80 years out is like, oh, shoot. Yeah. Talk about not winging it. This person is really, uh, really considering some things here. Yeah, no question. No question. It was it was such an eye opening thing for me to, to listen to this guy and basically at the end go, gosh, I'm an idiot. <laughs> This guy is so freaking smart that that I can't. I mean, thank God there are people like him in the world that are that are fighting battles that that won't even come to us for another twenty years. It, battles that that you and I, you and I may not even really see. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and it's all of these decisions we're making today impact that later. Yeah, and that and so here's the really interesting thing, and and it's something that I say, which is. So black sheep in the, in the concept of the book, black sheep don't live in the future. They live in the present. Mm. And so when, when we are trying to make decisions, uh, uh, many of us find ourselves being pulled towards the future, which causes anxiety or being pulled towards the past, which can cause depression. And so the idea is, we have to stay present with our black sheep to make the best decisions. Because if we're out thinking uh, or projecting into the future of what could happen, um, we're guessing. We're not being deliberate with our intention because we can't be because it hasn't happened yet. Um, and if we find we're living too much in the past, um, you know, sometimes these values aren't born from, from great experiences. They're born from very painful experiences. And when you go back and you start to relive them and connect the dots and understand why these things matter so much to you, um, they can stir up some really uncomfortable feelings. And so the idea is staying present gives you the best shot of making the best decision you can in that moment. But I look at that and go, thank God there are people who who are thinking out past the future and asking questions that are going to lead to future policies and procedures and all these different ways that we're going to have to think about things because all I want to do is stay in the present. That's it. I'm not interested in aspirational values. I'm not interested in who I want to be. I'm interested in who I am and how can I maximize that impact. Well, and it makes sense what you were saying earlier about we all know where we're going. In, in the case for you earlier, you were talking about, I know I'm going to Florida. And yeah. then there's this whole this whole journey along the way of how am I going to get there? And that can only be made in the moment. And that can only be made by focusing on, to me, it feels like the flock of five and your black sheep. That's right. That deliberate intention happens in the present tense, right? And so you have to be aware that you're there so that you can use deliberate intention. You can use your black sheep to actually make the best decision of what's available to you at that moment. So one of the things that's causing me anxiety in my aspirationalness here is that we have to wait a long time for this book to come out, Brant. I know. We, we can't have this book. And it, I, I mean, like already I'm learning so much from you. I have so many notes of like, oh, I want to go do this. I'm going to go make my my three circles that you learned. And, yeah. and I'm going to go think about my black sheep and my flock of five. And so I've got this list. And so one of the things I think that that makes you stand out so much is on, and, and it makes sense now talking to you about it, is there's this this way that you show up that's not just a stereotype of a guy who was a musician and was a rock star. There, there isn't just one 
side of you. It's a very specific thing and it makes sense that you've blended it to create your own black sheep. So if someone is listening and they're out there and they're thinking, you know what? I want to become a public speaker, but I'm not best friends with Jim Knight. Yeah. <laughs> so besides, besides, although I will say I, I've, I've followed him for years back when I was a corporate trainer, I got a bootleg copy of the, of the hard rock cafe training manual. Yes. And it inspired me to think so differently. And so a couple of years ago, I was emceeing a conference and where we were both speaking and I was emceeing it as well. And I got to introduce Jim and it was like this highlight of my life. You would have thought I was introducing like Beyonce or something because to <laughs> me, he was such a rock star. But if someone at home is not best friends with Jim Knight and they're trying to figure out how do I own my black sheep on stage? How do I get up there and tell the types of stories like Brant does? What's your best piece of advice for them? So... Uh I'm going, to, I'm going to preface it with with two quick little stories that that I think will, will provide the context as to what they need to do. The first is in in 2018, I was offered to keynote a conference um, uh, by Contract Magazine uh, called Design Forum, and they basically invited all the top designers in the country into one room, and they talk about trends and they talk about where the industry is going. And, and um, there were two keynotes. Uh, I was the closing keynote and the opening keynote was a woman named Paula Zuccotti. Paula is uh, an ethnographer and a sort of brand strategist, a product development person uh, and, a, and a photographer. And she had released uh, uh, the year earlier a book called Everything We Touch. And what she did was she followed around 62 different people um, for 24 hours from the second they woke up to the second they went to bed and she documented everything they touched and so at the end of the day she took all of the objects she laid them out on, on a on the floor and she takes a picture of them so you have a chronological one shot sort of picture of someone's life of, of 24 hours in a day and you get a real sense of what matters most to them because she, she calls it future, future archaeology. You can actually look and see and see, oh, they've got pets. They're walking the dog. Oh, they uh, have a yoga mat. Oh, they're in workout clothes. Oh, they're, they're playing a cello. Uh, you, you just start to look and you start to see what matters to people by the objects that they choose to interact with every day. And so... I'm watching her do her opening keynote and I have a panic attack because I ask myself, if somebody followed me around for 24 hours, would they see any evidence of these six black sheep that I am telling people are the most important things in my life? And the truth was maybe at best, maybe. And I, and I realized in that moment, there's a massive difference between being intentional and using deliberate intention. And so I had to start finding a way to activate these black sheep. And that came through an article in the New York Times several months later. Um, it was an article on Gary Vaynerchuk. And, you know, I think, I don't know, anyone that's not aware of Gary V at this point, he's, he is sort of ubiquitous in the social media world. Um, I've met him once um, in a chance meeting at an airport and he was uh, just a honestly an incredible human being and very kind and, and generous with his time and, and um, everything you want someone to be when you think uh, that they are who they are. And um, so I'm, I'm reading this article 
and it says, uh, the title of it is something like, Jet's owner uh, in waiting decides to tailgate for now. And it talks about Gary Vaynerchuk's number one goal in life, which is to own the New York Jets. And when you talk to Gary, pretty much everything he does is, is in service of someday having the resources to purchase the New York Jets. And in the article, they interview Gary's brother, his name is AJ. And AJ said something that, that just rocked my world and changed what was possible for me. In the article, the, uh, the journalist asked, says to AJ, basically, it's a little weird talking to Gary because he talks about it like it's just gonna happen. And AJ responded with, of course, he's gonna speak it into existence. And I read that and I went, holy shit, that's the missing piece. I have to take the black sheep and I have to speak them into existence. I have to program them into my day. I have to choose when and where they're going to appear. And when I started to do that in January of this year, my entire life changed. My speaking engagements tripled, my fees doubled, I get named one of the top 10 motivational speakers in the country with like Amy Cuddy and Jack Nicholas and uh, uh, Magic Johnson. And I'm going, how the hell did I make that list? And then I go, wait a minute. I'm making that list because I am speaking my black sheep into existence on a daily basis with deliberate intention. And it has power. And so I started to do it. I continue to do it. And anyone that's trying to be a speaker, if you don't know what your black sheep are, you cannot be authentic on stage. It's impossible. If it happens, it's by accident or luck. So you have to define these things so that when I'm on stage, you should see creativity. You should feel hope. You should see the impact that I'm trying to create. Feel that empathy that comes from my heart. Understand that I love my family and that I am who I am, whether you like it or not. And, and everything that I give on stage goes through those filters. And that's the reason that people connect. I believe it's the reason that people keep continuing to ask me to speak is because they're going to get that from me every time. I'm not winging it. I know exactly what I'm going to do. I don't know all the words I'm going to say, but I know the filters of which I'm going to frame this talk. And I try to capture lightning in a bottle every time. And that's, if you're going to be a speaker, do your homework, figure out what your black sheep are, because without them, you cannot be authentic. Boom. That is the mic drop moment. And that's another episode of the mic drop moment for the history books. My guest today was Brant Mensoir. You can check out more about him at his website, brandmensoir.com. You can pre-order his book, which I encourage you to do, on Amazon and everywhere where books are sold. It's called Black Sheep, Unleash the Extraordinary, Awe-Inspiring, Undiscovered You. You can also check out his podcast, Thoughts That Rock, everywhere podcasts are. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. This episode has ended, but your journey doesn't have to. Head on over to MikeDenino.com. Access all the resources and links that Mike and his guests shared today. And keep on crafting your own story. That's MikeDenino.com. Your audience is waiting. Isn't it time to find your hashtag mic drop moment? 